Chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, meanwhile, immediately connects us back to Acts 8, verse 3, where they threw their cloaks at Saul's feet in approval, and then Saul went out and began to drag them out and began to persecute them. So this leads us to the next section. In this section, Luke recorded the conversion and the calling of Saul. Demonstrate the supernatural power and sovereign direction of Yahweh. Saul's conversion was one of the most miraculous and significant instances of repentance that took place during the early expansion of the church. Saul then began to minister, began to minister in Damascus and Arabia. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he found any there who believed belonged to the way. Now remember the way is the original way, the original title of the early Christians. The way is the first thing, the first title that was given to this new group. Okay, They're not Jewish anymore. At this point, everybody's beginning to realize these are not Jews anymore. There's something different about what they believe. They're, they're proclaiming a Messiah that the Jews do not like. We cannot think of them as Jewish anymore. Jewish ethnically, yes. Jewish in faith, no. It meant that the path characterized by life and salvation. It's a, the way of a new life and a new salvation that the Jews had not really preached. It's not a new way of life or salvation and God's redemptive plan laid out from the beginning of Genesis. But it's a new way of life and salvation and the way that the Jews have been teaching and preaching for the last several hundred years or more in Judea. The Christian movement involves a new way of thinking about Yahweh, the world, and of living. The latter was most distinctive about the religion. The latter was most distinctive about Christianity because the Jewish religion was largely a matter of orthopraxy, meaning living right in a certain way. You had to dress a certain way, you had to talk a certain way, you had to do certain rituals, you had to go a certain place at a certain time you had to you had to do a certain um, kosher lifestyle you had to say a certain way you had to pray certain passages from the bible when you go up to the temple it was all about orthopraxy ortho meaning right and praxy practice the right way that you practice things where in the greco-roman world religion was largely a matter of performance and rituals and rites okay so the greco-roman world was not about right practices it was basically about if you do the right rituals and say the right words, you're okay. You just sacrifice your animal and go on with your life. And yes, that was somewhat true of the Jews, but you also had to live it out the rest of your life in a certain way. The deep theological content, along with the absence of the priests, sacrifices, and temples, set the way apart from both Judaism and paganism. What made the way different was it wasn't that only the priests could do this. And only the Levites could do that. And only the Pharisees could do this. And only you could do this. And it had to be done in a certain way and on a certain day of the week. Jesus came along and said, no one day is going to be more holy than any other place. Day. No one place is going to be more holy than any other. It is no longer going to be about rich or wealthy or whatever. It's going to be about the gospel for everybody. Philip is able to do the exact same things that apostles are able to do. Women are going to be able to do the same thing that the men are able to do. 
It doesn't matter. The, the, the poor and the lame are going to come in. In fact, the lame is one of the first people that begins to come to Christ outside of just the, the Jewish men and the women. And so it's very clear that this is more about a lifestyle of community rather than a specific practice and organizational structure or ritualistic words that just you wave the wand and you're okay. It also shows you Saul was not out there as some rogue Jew. He wasn't some fanatical, radical um, terrorist who took the faith way too seriously and took it to extremes and began to like kill Christians. And the, the Jewish church, um, the Jewish synagogues were like, oh my gosh, this guy is out of control and he's giving us a bad name. He went to the high priests and he got papers with a high priest's seal on it, approving of him going to cities and capturing Christians and killing them. This is government ordained. This is religious approval on the highest levels. This isn't radical fanaticism. This is Orthodox Judaism and a second temple error. And this is very important for you to understand because we will see the Jews later who will get out of control. We saw them already kill Stephen as a lynch mob. We'll see them go out and try to kill Paul and other things too. And you sometimes will think, well, maybe they're just getting heated up and losing their emotions. No, 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 no. They're doing this so many times because they know that the state, the Jewish temple state approves of this. They're okay with this. Yes, mobs get out of control sometimes, but they don't get out of control over and over and over and over again when the government keeps slamming down on them and punishing them. But if they keep doing that over and over again, it's government approved. It's government approved. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul would have immediately known that this was Yahweh. Because Saul is a devout Jew. He is the trained of all trained. He's a Pharisee who has had the highest training by Gamaliel, the most respected Pharisee, the highest ranking Pharisee that there is in Judaism. He has the approval. This is significant because the high priest is the Sadducees. So not only is he highly trained by the most respected Pharisee and has a high position of authority there, but he's also respected enough by the Sadducees on the other side of the political spectrum that they're giving him papers validating his killing of the Christians. And so he's accepted by, in so words, the Democrats and the Republicans. He is highly trained. He's highly respected. He has high authority. And he is deeply, deeply religious and devout and incredibly knowledgeable about the First Testament. And he would believe that only Yahweh has the power to do this. Only Yahweh would be coming speaking to him. He would not believe that the pagan gods would come and speak to him this way. In fact, the, the pagans would not believe that the pagan gods would come and speak to you this way. They don't care about you. And so as a Roman citizen who is familiar with the Greek world, because he knows the Greek world too, he's going to quote passages from the Greek uh, mythologies and that kind of stuff. And as a Jew, he understands pagan gods don't speak to you. Pagan gods don't have the power to make you blind. Pagan gods don't come and say things like this. Only Yahweh has this power. 
So for him in his mind, there's no doubt this is Yahweh. There's no doubt this is Yahweh. What is confusing is not who is speaking to him in his mind. What's confusing is why is this person saying, why are you persecuting me? That's what would be confusing. Lord, I'm not persecuting you. I'm making your world a better place. This isn't against you. This is against your enemies. That's what would be confusing. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Now, this isn't a question of, I don't know who's speaking to me. This is a confusion of, why are you saying this necessarily? Now, I know you would see, like, you're reading into that, and that's not what exactly it's saying. There is that, that he doesn't know who's speaking to him, mostly because it would be more like, you of all people, why would you be saying this kind of thing? Who, who are you that you're saying this? It's kind of like if, if your wife or your husband says something to you very, very odd, okay, or they go something completely contrary, like you know that they hate spicy food. They can't stand spicy food. Every time they have it, they freak out. And they're like, you know what? We should get some spicy food. And you're like, who are you? Okay? I think there's more of that idea that's going on here. I know this is Yahweh because only Yahweh can do this. But who are you? Because Yahweh would not be angry with me. Yahweh would not be saying that you're persecuting me. Right? There's just a confusion of going on here. Not necessarily he has no idea who he's talking to, but what's going on? It's, it's, It's a discombobulatedness. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. He immediately obeys. This devout Jew that hates the Christians, who is employed as the single most powerful hand against the Christians by the high priest and the Pharisees. Just hears Jesus say, I'm Jesus, stop doing that. Go where I tell you. And he turns 180 and begins to follow Jesus. Now why? Because that's what I mean. He knows this is Yahweh. Deep down inside, he knows this is Yahweh. He knows that only Yahweh could do this. He knows that Yahweh can only speak like this. The authority is clear. There is no pagan God that has this authority. I really, truly believe. When when God came down on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, and he began to speak to the Jews, and they literally heard God with their own ears. And they heard him speak the Ten Commandments with their own ears. And they said, Do not let us, Moses, hear the voice of God anymore. We can't handle it. It's too much for us. I don't think it was necessarily the decibels were too high. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure they were. Okay? God wasn't like, and you must do this. Okay? I mean, it was booming. But Moses wasn't complaining about going deaf. Moses wasn't complaining about his ears beginning to bleed and hurt too much. Joshua wasn't. Okay? I really think... I really truly believe that God's voice was so righteous and holy and his voice, the word of God became flesh, was a a, a persona of himself that when the Jews heard his voice, they were overwhelmed by the righteousness of God and couldn't handle as sinners. 
And the same way that you can't physically come into the presence of God because his righteousness literally physically exudes out of him as the glory of God. I think his voice is also his being um, because he's not a physical entity. He's a spirit. And I think there was a physical entity of righteousness that was in his voice. And when it hit into their uttermost being, they felt the holiness slamming against their sinfulness and they couldn't handle it. And, and I think when Paul is hearing this voice, it is more than just decibels. He is feeling and sensing the power of God flooding through him in a way that he knows theologically and physically impossible for a pagan God to do. And the fact that all this God says is, I am Jesus. Jesus who's now coming to him with the same presence as Yahweh. Jesus now speaking to him with the same power as Yahweh. Jesus now speaking to him with the same authority. I believe you can feel the authority of God. God is just so beyond anything we can imagine. You're going to feel the authority. You're going to feel the righteousness. You're not just going to look at them and say, look, that's a righteous person. Look how authority, look, they have authority because they have the stars on their, I think you're going to feel it all. It's, it's going to invade your innermost being and it's going to do something to you. Isaiah says, it's like, whoa, me, I have come into the presence of God and the, right, the presence of God forces him to his knees. This is why he turns on a dime. He knows Yahweh so well theologically, even though he may not know him relationally, that when he simply says, I am Jesus, there is no other conclusion. And this is what's so amazing. Paul, Saul, has no intimate relationship with God. And yet he knows God so well theologically that all Jesus has to do is come with the same authority and power and words as Yahweh, and Paul, Saul, converts like that. There's no doubt in his mind who this being is. And this is why I'm saying, I don't think he was confused of who was speaking to him. He was confused why he was saying what he was saying. And then probably was confused in that moment of why they said, I am Jesus. But the experience was so powerful that it did not take him long to reconcile. Now, he's going to spend the next three years trying to figure it all out. But he's not going to spend the next three years trying to figure out who spoke to him. He knows it. Yes, knowledge without a relationship is not salvation. But a relationship can only be informed with knowledge. You don't really know your spouse or your family if you don't have knowledge about them. If I don't know your, your desires and your fears and your successes and your nightmares and your dreams and, and what you like and what you don't like and how you feel at this and this stuff, then I can't have a relationship with you. You need both. And so now he has both. He now has a knowledge of God and now he realizes this Jesus is God. But now he's going to deepen his knowledge of this Jesus being God. And he converts. And this says something about knowing your Bible well. This says something about correctly identifying when it is God and when it is not, even when you don't have a relationship with him, but you know it well. You know him well theologically. This is why Paul, Saul, is going to become so powerful of a teacher. Because if he knew God theologically so well that he just he, he recognized him when he saw him, 
All he has to do is add these couple gospels that layer to it. And his understanding is going to be absolutely phenomenal. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This shows that this was an hallucination. They couldn't see anything, his witnesses, but they could hear. And the fact that they're hearing something shows that this is an hallucination. And then he's struck with blindness because now his physical blindness represents and matches his spiritual blindness. And it's also going to force them into deep introspection. So they lead him to Damascus, where he was ready to go into Damascus and begin his slaughter. And now he's going to Damascus blind. And for three days he doesn't eat or drink anything, which means you know what he's doing as a Jew. If you're not eating or drinking, he is just sitting still in total isolation and absolute contemplation, praying and trying to connect God because his world just got blown up big time. And he knows who came to him. And there's no doubt. But he's probably got to be like, holy crap. I can't imagine the angst, the, the, the life crisis that he's going through, the, the, the sadness and sorrow of knowing what he was truly doing, the guilt and the shame of how wrong he was, the, 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 the mind-blowingness. Maybe even a few hours later, like, maybe, no, no, that couldn't be, that couldn't be. But then also remember, I cannot deny that moment. Like all the things are just whirling through him that I can only imagine from the things I've experienced on a teeny little level, let alone something that big. And so he's going to contemplate. He's going to spend time. But the thing is, is that his threat has now been neutralized. And then what God is going to do in the next three years is redirect it the opposite direction. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Now notice the similarities. Okay, now this is a disciple of Christ. And he's going to get the same voice of God coming to him. And he's going to respond in the same way. But the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on this straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias as has come, and Nias come, and place his hand on him to restore his sight. So obviously we're getting greater details, either in this vision that God came to Saul on the road to Damascus, or later now that he's in Damascus, and the three days of fasting, God has come to him again. He has now had a vision of Ananias coming and laying hands on him so he can be healed of his blindness. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on the name. Now imagine Ananias, what? What? I know who this guy is. Like, you want me to literally walk myself into the hands of the man who's arresting and killing people under the authority of the high priest? Like, what? I know this man. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. 
Now, here's your first thing. From the very beginning, the Saul that has been, Saul has been picked as a pure-blooded, devout Jew of the highest training and office and respect. God, from the very beginning, says, I have chosen to go to the Gentiles. I've chosen to go to Gentiles. He is going to spearhead the ministry of the Gentiles that Philip with the Ethiopian and Peter later with Cornelius has begun. And he's going, the door is going to be unlocked and cracked by Philip and Peter. But it's going to be blown wide open with the ministry of Paul. This is what I've called him to. And they're kings. And they're kings. Which is important because at the end of Acts, God is going to come to Paul and say, You will be okay, for I am going to bring you all the way to Rome, and you will testify right in the presence of Caesar himself, Caesar King. So from the very beginning, right here, God is basically telling you, I'm going to take him to the ends, all the way to the Roman Empire and stand before kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So he's also going to go to the Jews too. And then God says, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. He will suffer like Christ. He will suffer for the gospel. Then Ananias went. This is amazing. Instant obedience as well. Instant obedience. This is like a Jew that is called by God to go right into the heart of Hitler. Nazi rally campaign with the burning books and walk right up to the podium and say, God told me to come to you. That's incredible obedience and trust in God. I guarantee you, you're scared as mine. <laughs> He's human. Just because God commands you and you're willing to obey doesn't mean all the emotions go away. He doesn't vulcanize you to do the will of God. He entered the house and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now this is powerful because once again we have Ananias. He's not an apostle. He's not one of the seven chosen. There seems to be no high ranking. He's all the way up in Damascus, which is so far north that we're completely out of Israel right now. And we're now in the ancient Aram territory controlled by the Romans completely. So he's a Hellenistic Jew big time. He, he's, he has no authority no respect of the Jewish people in any kind of way. Maybe many Christians don't even see him as a highly respected, the, the Jerusalem Christians, as a highly respected Christian. And yet he has been given by God the ability to lay on hands, heal people, and see visions like a prophet. That is what it means to have the divine counsel. God spoke his will to Ananias. And in, in so certain ways, Ananias is going to Saul and saying, Thus saith Yahweh. The office of prophets has died with the coming of Christ so that every believer can become the prophet. 
Now, are there some people who are more in tune to the voice of God and God has gifted them to hear the voice of God better? Yes. Just like are there some people who are more gifted in preaching the gospel than other or more gifted to teach and more gifted to have hospitality and that kind of stuff? Yes. But does that mean that only they are allowed to be hospitable? Only they are allowed to teach and only they are allowed to preach the gospel? No. So yes, there are some people who are more gifted with the gift of prophecy, which literally just means speaking the will of God. It doesn't actually mean predicting the future. But the actual official office where only a few can hold it no longer exists. It is for every believer. And this is what we're seeing. Then Ananias, verse 17, went to the house and entered it. Oh, sorry, I read that. Verse 19b. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is Christ. Now this is significant because his 180 is very well known to everybody else. Everybody's seen there's like, what? I know, isn't this the guy? Like, he's the enemy of these people. He's killing them, and now he's he's preaching on their behalf. But then he begins to baffle. They see the power of Paul because he can stand up now with the best of the Jewish scholars. He can stand up. He is like Jesus in that sense that he is incredibly knowledgeable as a teacher, and he can stand up. And where the Jews were anti the Christians. Now they have this formidable teacher who is now preaching against them and he can connect the dots. And this is the very, 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 very beginning of his ministry. And he can connect enough dots that he can wow people in this sense. After many days had gone, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. And day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in the basket through an opening in the wall. Verses 19b through 25 is hard to know where it happened chronologically in Saul's conversion. Obviously, it's post-conversion, but how far after Paul's conversion? And it says immediately, some of your translations translate this sometime later or several days later. Immediately doesn't always mean immediately. And in the, the Second Testament, you would like it. It's, it's like when it's all does not always mean all either. When it says all of Israel came to see Jesus teach, no, they didn't. Okay, we, we know that that, that didn't, did not happen. It's hard to know where these verses, 19b through 25, fit chronologically into the events of Saul's life. We do have some insight for other, from Paul's writings and other places. It could mean just very soon after his conversion. Saul later wrote that immediately following his conversion, he did not consult with others, but went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus in order to preach. So in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, Paul says that when he was converted, he stayed in Damascus for a couple of days or a few days, and then he went over to Arabia. And then he spent some time there and then came back to Damascus and started preaching. So this, according to Galatians and Paul's own words, 
He's gone to Arabia and come back again. And now he's preaching the gospel. Arabia referred to the kingdom of the Nabataeans that stretched south and east from Damascus. So Damascus, the implication is that he needed some time for quiet reflection and communion with Yahweh to rethink the scriptures and light of Jesus is. Once back in Damascus, he boldly preached Jesus as the Son of God. This is the only mention in Acts of someone proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. It's the only time in Acts that that's proclaimed, which is very significant because this is a very Jewish phrase. And Paul would have known that. This fact reflects the clear understanding that, of Jesus that Saul had even shortly under his conver- after his conversion. He uses the title of Jesus frequently in his epistles. Now you might think, I've heard this Son of God phrase a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot. You heard it just a couple of times in the Gospel genealogies. But where you hear it a lot is in Paul's writings. This is a Pauline phrase. Um, Not that he coined it, not that he came up with it, not that he was the only one using it, but he just used it a lot, a lot. He went away to Arabia for a while, out into the desert, got away from the city, got away from the Jews, got away from everybody. And I wouldn't be surprised if he just picked up the Bible and started reading Genesis. And now with this understanding of Jesus, if he just went cover to cover with what he had and started seeing like Psalm 118. Sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool and I will make you a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You're not allowed to be king and priest simultaneously according to the law. Okay? And he starts going through all these passages in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 64 and, and all these things and all of a sudden like ding, 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 light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. And once he comes back, he's a powerhouse. Even Paul, who was highly trained, highly knowledgeable and highly devoted, still got away for a while and re-educated himself, so to speak, for lack of a better phrase, and did not come back until he was ready. And if he knew the Bible better than most people and still need to get away and know it better, then how much more should we train our own people when they convert before we start throwing bodies into ministries? Okay, discipleship is absolutely essential. Now, granted, in the early church, when there are nobody to disciple you, that's a different thing. But I guarantee you they would have loved a disciple. <laughs> There's somebody to disciple them, a discipler. 